Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. You could have done anything else and could be doing anything else, and yet you've decided to check in with us. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us right now to get into any discussion we may have. And we got a lot. We're going to get to it. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit us there. Um, and, of course, of course, um, you always can reach out to us by email at labachelor40 at gmail.com, or um, certainly you can hit us up at Pad Nation on Facebook. We're live on Facebook now, and um, or LA Bachelor as well. Twitter, Pad, Pad Nation, too. I want to bring in my first guest. He is a licensed relationship therapist. Uh, of course, uh, he has been featured on Cosmopolitan uh, 51 First Dates podcast and the DBS podcast. Good to have him on uh, for the first time. He is Trey H. Hennis. And, Trey, listen, I appreciate you. You, you said don't call you doctor, so I, I may call you Dr. Trey just to play on it a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, we, pre- we appreciate you coming on this evening, sir. Fantastic. Absolute pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. So I, I wanted to bring you on. We, we're doing a series, um, and it, we can't get it all in one show, about black love. Black love in terms of two people, a spouse, you know, um, uh, male, female, otherwise, and, and certainly um, love of self, which could hinder a lot of relationships, I would think, in your profession you see. But in, in terms of the origin of the issues that black men and women have in this society. And I, I got all the stats. We could throw that around all day, you know, marriage and percentages and interracial day. All that stuff is in front of me. But I want to go to you and ask you what, in your professional opinion, whether it be some of your patients or just in your studies, is sort of the, the core, the origin, the decline, not only just of marriages, but this this relationship we call uh, between black men and black women. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think there are a few different components. You know, if we talk about the breakdown of marriage, you know, the relationship between black men and black women, I think one of the first things you have to take into consideration is technology. You know, the age of information uh, has essentially changed dating, marriage, the ideologies of marriage, the paradigms of long-term commitment and monogamy. It's just completely changed the game. In addition to that, the Western world, every year we become more progressive with the paradigms of what monogamy means. You know, we've seen the rise of polyamory, and that is when you and your partner decide to be in relationships with other people while still being in relationships with each other. We've seen the rise of internet dating and app dating where you can essentially date with anonymity and no one really knows that you're married or or in a relationship. Um, And we've seen the acceptance of essentially uh, marrying who you want to marry. The good thing is that there's still a large percentage of, uh, you know, 85% of black men are still marrying black wives. Uh, 9% have a white spouse, 3% have Hispanic, and uh, the other 3% have other. I don't really know what that means. Um, but essentially, <laughs> technology is, is slowly tearing apart, you know, institutionalized monogamy and marriage that we've seen for, for decades and centuries. Well, where does that come from, though? I mean, let's let's go back to the marriage part. As you, you mentioned, um, 
the decline, the numbers in marriage, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you know, only 29% of uh, African Americans are married. And that's down from four years ago. Um, so you talked about, you know, online dating and those things and, and being able to be uh, sort of secret in what you're, you're doing. But there has to be an origin of why you're doing it. Why, if you're married, that you decide as a black man and woman that you decide that you want to step out of your marriage and and start another relationship with another man or another woman um, or whatever um, is the core value gone from from black marriages from black people in terms of when they come together in a relationship are our are, are core values going away and if so is it because of the technology the online dating the 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 wanting to take a, a bite from that other apple yeah you know i i think Time and time. So there's an old saying, right, where you are only as good. A man is only as faithful as his options. No, I'm not saying that's a fact. I'm not saying that I stand by that, but that's an old saying, right? And now, you see, back in the day, you know, you could meet someone at a gas station. You can meet someone at an apartment complex. You could meet someone at work. You can meet someone at school, you know, and those were basically the forms of meeting people. So your options were limited and the person that you stuck with you felt like was the best you could get because you really hadn't seen that many options now you could literally be sitting through the comfort of your own home and you can have a single bar in the comfort of your own hand and you can swipe and find someone that if there wasn't this technology you never would have seen before and unfortunately what that gives people is a paradox of not getting married because they're waiting for the next best option because they know that if it doesn't work out with the person that perhaps they should have been destined to marry, that there's always going to be another option. There's always going to be a next best thing because all you have to do is pick up your phone and swipe and swipe and swipe until you have that match. So when people traditionally used to commit, when people traditionally used to work through relationships, used to talk through problems, used to be master communicators, that's just not happening anymore because people don't need to do that. Because people know that if I have a big argument with the person that I'm in a relationship right now, maybe I can find someone who doesn't argue like that. But what they don't realize is that when you leave a relationship because you guys can't get through conflict resolution, the next person that perhaps doesn't have that fault that the previous person has, they're going to have another fault that you don't like. And that next person is going to have another issue that you don't like. And what's happening right now is, Millennials, particularly people who are at the ages between 25 to 35 right now, is they're going through this cycle. They're getting in relationships that last from three to four months, and what they're doing is any kind of conflict or any issues or if there's a small thing that they don't particularly like, they're out of it. And there was a, a study that was released by the Pew Research Center that essentially said 25% of millennials are likely never to ever be married. And that's because of that one paradox of online dating. Well, if you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Trey H. Hennis. Uh, he's a licensed re relationship ther therapist, a black, black man himself. Uh, full disclosure, uh, we try to reach out to um, kind of balance the scale with a female um, a black therapist, and um, we were unable to do that. Uh, but will continue as this these shows go on we'll, we'll certainly will have uh that situation you know um trey you one of the things uh, again going back to the core and you you like 
I like the term back in the day that you use. You know, back in the day, yes, uh, it, it seems though our grandparents and and their parents uh, worked things out. Um, there was a lot more emphasis. Certainly, you can even look at the numbers there. Um, emphasis on spirituality, um, that it was biblical that you stay married, um, not just for the sake of your soul, but the sake of your kids. We'll get to that in a, a second. But it was biblical and spiritual to stay together. Um, and some experts and some uh, sort of articles to say that black men and black women are going in opposite directions in at that aspect that um, I've, I've seen that, you know, a lot of black women, if they aren't dating, hitting that button on the phone, um, they're holding out, if you will, quote unquote, um, for that godly man. And to a lesser percentage, and I'm not trying to kill either side, to a lesser percentage, maybe not so much with black men. So they don't stay in these relationships. They get divorce because they want to have that core values. We can get into if somebody, you know, infidelity and all that kind of stuff. But do you, do you buy into that? Have you researched that? Have you had um, any of your, your patients or clients deal with that of, uh, about, you know, the spiritual moral side of things have been part of the disconnect of the black family? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you say that in, in the black community, traditionally, we're, we're very religious, you know, we're very Christian. And I think that there is a disconnect between the modern black male and the modern black women. You know, right now we're living in an age where, you know, black women are, and I don't want to generalize, but in the kind of couples that I've spoken to, the single people that I've spoken to for relationship advice, you know, oftentimes the black women that, you know, they're coming to me saying that a lot of men they're dating aren't necessarily God-fearing. Some of them don't even believe in God. And again, I'm not saying that's all of them, but that, that right. seems to be the big disconnect right there. In addition to that, what we're seeing is that we are kind of in a weird world right now where we want to be progressive. We want to talk about equality and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of people want it both ways. And by that, I mean, they want to have a traditional role. They want to have a traditional marriage where the man is leading the way, the man is paying the majority of the bills, you know, the man is the patriarch of the house. But at the same time, you know, they want it where it's equality in the sense that, okay, a man has to be an alpha, he has to lead the way, he has to, you know, pay a majority of the bills, but they also want it where, you know, he's essentially doing what he can to make sure that she's happy, he's looking after the kids, he's you know, changing diapers as well. He's preparing meals as well. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, I buy into any particular gender role. But what I'm saying is a lot of people feel like they can have it both ways. And if you want a traditional God-fearing marriage, you can't have it both ways. That's just not the reality of modern relationships right now because the world is telling you one thing, right? You should do this. You should look at your career first, you know, don't ever let a woman tell you what to do. Don't ever let a man tell you what to do. But then traditions are telling you the complete opposite. And, you know, no man can mm. serve two masters, right? That, and that's uh, certainly out of uh, out of the good book. Um, you know, uh, it, w with that being said, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day, you know, having it both ways, wanting, uh, you know, a man to be um, sensitive uh 
to a woman's needs, being, you know, allowing them to be a damsel, you know, being a polite, opening the doors, paying for dinner, things of that nature leading up, you know, if you're dating leading up to a uh, long-term and a marriage, which is, could be two different things. Um, and, and some women sort of buck about that. So how, how do, how do you merge the two? I mean, is there any possibility of the understanding there? Because, you know, some people think that if, if two sides are sort of have these, uh, traditions and even I would say preconceived notions, then you lose out. You might have missed the, the greatest man you would have would have been your partner or the, the greatest woman that would have been your, your wife forever because of the mixture and, and I guess what I'm saying is that uh, uh are are the people going to listen to what society says and let that be um the way they lead their relationships or are they going to go to traditional marriage and relationships? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always the first to this, right? Back in the day, the, the general consensus was, you know, if, if there's a man who's, you know, making a bulk of the money and, you know, the woman is at home looking after the kids, the role was always, you know, the man would, make the money, put food on the table, you know, take care of the family. And that was his role, right? And then the woman's role was, hey, you know, I'll take care of the kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'll take care of the house, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this is, you know, anything that I stand by. I stand by an individualist, um, an individual approach between you and your spouse. But I'm going to get into that in a second. But what, what we're seeing now is that, you know, the trade-offs that, that people want aren't matching and they don't usually discuss it until they're a couple of dates in. Sometimes that they're, they're even in a relationship. So uh, both parties, you know, men want it where, and I wouldn't say all men, but some men want it where, you know, they can be their provider and, and they can have, they can take care of their woman and, you know, they want something in return, uh, but they're not getting it. And then some women, they feel to themselves, okay, well, you know, so long as you take care of me, I'll take care of you. And a lot of men aren't taking care of them because they feel like, okay, well, you know, if you want equality, then you're going to pay for your half. You're going to pay for your meal. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you truly want equality, then, you know, you can't have it both ways. You know, I'm not going to take care of you if you want to be, you know, if you want to have that sense of equality in the relationship. And what I think needs to happen, and, and this is what for me, is, you know, the first couple of dates, you two just have an honest conversation. You know, you look at your woman in the eye and say, hey, what do you think is good for you in a relationship? What works for you? And as a man, you say, hey, this is what works for me in a relationship. I'll give you an example, okay? For me, you know, um, I believe in equality and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, relationships should really be what you two decide. But I also like a woman who embraces the feminine i don't really typically i'm not attracted to masculine women right that's a preference that i have i'm always going to you know let the person that i'm trying to be in a relationship know right so she and i know that we're on the same page and if you're a woman you should say hey you know i'm looking for a, a god-fearing man i'm looking for a masculine man i'm looking for an alpha man and you be very clear what you want because that way there could be no disputation there can't be a situation where the guy said oh but I didn't know you wanted that because you never communicated it from the get-go. 
everything needs to happen from the first three dates in regards to communication. It's it's funny you you brought that up, um, Doctor Trey, because when you uh, you have situations where um, people are dating, there is no it seems right no no real honesty. It's almost like I used to say years ago, um, you know, when you're hungry, everything tastes good. So sometimes it seems, Doc, you know better than I do, that um, it seems as though black men and women tend to try to force relationships that are not there. You can't put a square, square in a circle based on whatever they want, whether they're trying to, whether the woman's trying to um, make the man that they just met into what they want it to be or perceive and the opposite. Like they, you know, you know, after a few dates, right. That is probably sometimes after a, a conversation that's probably not going to be, a good mix. So why, what is the reason behind that? Is that insecurity? Is that, you know, because people feel lonely? Why do they try to force relationships that are really not there? You know, especially now with, you know, the, the civil rights movement that we're, we're almost reigniting in regards to talking about, you know, black lives matter and stuff like that. I think a lot of black men and black women feel like, look, you know, we're going through an important movement right now, and I, I want to be with, you know, a brother or a sister that's, you know, going to help me raise kids so we can protect them and, and help them understand what it truly means to to be black and, and proud, right? But, you know, it's, it's very steeper among blacks right now. I, I mean, I remember reading an article. It said that in the 1960s, you know, 74% of whites were married, and that rate dropped to 56% in 2008. And, and when I think about that, that's a huge, huge drop. But what's interesting is that in comparison to blacks, in 1960, 61% of blacks were married, okay? In 2008, it's only 32%. Black people are getting divorced more often and remarry less frequently than uh, Caucasian people right now, which is nuts when you think about it. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, whenever I try and counsel a couple, you know, I let them know how imperative it is that they survive in this modern dating world and relationship world and marriage world right now because, you know, things are slowly falling apart and we need to stick together if we're going to be in a situation where we can progress as a people. Uh, you know, um, Doc, and I, I got a question that came in, and I want to remind people that you can get online and ask questions at 646-929-0130. Um, you can also hit us up in the chat room uh, online if you're listening online. Uh, you can hit us up with your questions and comments in the chat room as well. Email us, labachelor40 at gmail.com, and hit us up on Facebook at Pad Nation or Twitter at Pad Nation too if you have uh, a question. So there's all kinds of ways to get to uh, Dr. Trey, and then ask some some questions. Doc, when you when you mention all of that, um, and it it goes to um, we I asked about you know what are the reasons why they they do what they do in terms of trying to force relationships. One of the the stats and one of the things that I think people don't black people don't really realize is that, and it goes back to the Monaghan letters back 
you know, in 1962, um, that if we already know, is Captain Obvious is, you know, statistically kids grow up better when there's a mother and father in in the household, married. They don't really go into just living together, but mother and father there in the household. They They do generally better in all phases of their life for the most part. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, the numbers go down, single moms, you know, no, no men in the household, we get into incarceration and why they're not doing things of that nature, but the kids get affected. So it's almost, it's, it's what's worse for children, at least two parents that stay together, knowing they should not be together. They probably shouldn't even gotten together in the first place for the sake of the kids, and then, you know, kids are smart. They see things, they know things, and they absorb things. So they see the the tension, if there's tension there. Or parents that get divorced, um, and those kids have to deal with, you know, the separation. You're staying with mom sometimes, you're staying with dad sometimes. Maybe dad's not there all the time. Maybe mom gave up her right, whatever the case may be. What's worse? I mean, because ultimately – um, the breakdown of the family has affected the kids and, and kids learn, you know, from those surroundings and those adults that are around them, good or bad. I concur with you fully. I, I think it's, it's definitely difficult because there is that stigma of, you know, having the paradigm of single moms because, you know, black men, we still have a significantly higher incarceration rate, right? And that leaves, you know, uh, a lot of uh, boys or, or girls motherless, uh, fatherless, and it's difficult for them to kind of want to get married because that's not necessarily something that they grew up with. And when I say this, you know, this isn't me necessarily victim shaming or anything like that, but you could imagine that, you know, in the 70s and 60s when there weren't any video cameras to film the atrocities that some police officers had done or, you know, when Bill Clinton, you know, had that act where even if you had some weed, essentially you could be locked up for five to six years, right? You know, there's generations that are still trying to recover from that. You know, generations that didn't see their father around because he was locked up for for blatant racism or racial profiling, and, and that is suffering that people... You know, people in my generation, you know, we're suffering by the effects of that right now because some of us didn't grow up with a traditional family. So it's hard for us to want that. I also think when you talk about, you know, characteristics and situations why black men and black women are are getting married less, I think expectations are are very, very high for both parties. But I want to focus specifically on, on women's preferences. You know, black men, a lot of them, and the black men that I've spoken to have, have felt like they have an increasing amount of pressure and that they fall very short of a woman's preference. You know, for example, I had uh, a guy I was talking to about two months ago who had recently broken up with his girlfriend, and he wanted me to, to help him find a date. You know, he wanted me to, to get an online dating profile. So I, I did his online dating profile for him. I helped him with his bio. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's kind of crazy out there. You know, women want you to have, you know, an amazing body, a, a six-figure job. They want you to be empathetic, but they want you to be alpha. You know, they don't want you to be trying too hard, but they want you to be trying hard. They want to be taken out. They want someone to raise a family. They don't want you to have any kids. 
They don't want you to have any debt. They don't want you. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And again, you know, I'm not saying that this is just separate to black women, but I don't date, you know, men. So I wouldn't really be able to talk from a woman's perspective. Um, but, you know, they, they have very, very high aspirations, which isn't a bad thing. But I'll give an example, right? When black women were asked uh, how important it is that they have a good husband or a partner to provide a good income, two-thirds of black women said that it was very, very important compared to 32% of white women. And then roughly 55% of black women said that it was very important for a husband or partner to be well-educated compared to 28% of white women. So what that's saying is that um, a lot of black women are saying that, look, you know, 55% of them to be specific are saying, look, you know, you're not really going to get an opportunity if you're not highly educated, which I think is drastically unfair because not everyone is afforded the privilege of being highly educated. I think, you know, some of the best employees have worked for me who have just had high school diplomas. And quite frankly, they've worked harder than most people who have university degrees. And, and that's a stigma that, that needs to die. And then half of the black women said that financial stability should be an important precondition for marriage. But only a quarter of white women felt that way. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that, you know, Caucasian women are better than black women. What I am saying is that black women have very, very high expectations for black men. I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, but I do think that there is a portion of black men who don't fulfill that criteria who feel like they're losing out and feel like it's not even a battle that I want to fight because there's no way I can possibly win right now. Wow. You know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, you said that uh, again. Um, I, I'm a, a member of a few different groups, real, real dads and some, some stuff like that. Um, we have conversations like that a, a, a lot about those things and I won't get into my specifics, but a lot of, a lot of the brothers say that, you know, that, that that's the case. Even when, you know, um, prejudging everybody tends to prejudge on some some level and you know some of the brothers have said to me you know um i i just don't know what what they want black women want you know if i'm dressed and clean cut they think i'm soft if i look like a thug then i'm too i'm too thugged out they don't want that if i and and i think the um the what you mentioned in regards to education um there are a lot of opportunities to get an education i do think that you know some form of training i would say is important Mm -hmm. but like you said not everybody's going to get a degree and then at the same time i do believe that uh a you want to i would want someone um to be bringing something to the table financially, working at least, right? Um, if you're able-bodied, you're not, you know, disabled or anything. Um, and certainly, and the other thing is, you know, coming to the table if you, uh, you know, you're either trying to improve your credit and you're standing or you have good credit. I mean, these are the things that I think both men, black women, men and women kind of look at, especially if if they're in that position, but does that mean from those stats that you said, Dr. Trey, that um, is it hard for 
say, an educated, well-off black woman to even give an opportunity or come into the same circles of a black man who is the opposite. And, you know, same thing with a black man, black man who's well-off and um, educated, trying to date and be in a relationship and have a long-lasting relationship with a woman that is not of those same areas. Well, you know, I, I think you have to to look at, at the expectations for both sexes, right? You know, the, typically the saying goes, a man is only as good as what he can provide. That rings very, very true. You know, I noticed a, a significant change in the kind of relationships I had when I was broke and studying my MBA in my undergraduate <laughs> versus when I was actually having a salary job, right? There was a significant change with my dating opportunities, right? But that same mentality is not given to women. You will never hear anyone say a woman's value is only as good as what she can provide financially. You know, for most men, a woman's value is how she can support him, right? How they can grow together. You know, we're biologically wired to want and need certain things, even though we're all about equality these days. We still can't ignore, you know, what we're biologically required to want. Men have been the hunter and gatherer since the beginning of time, literally hunting bison as cavemen. Do you see where we're coming from? So, you know, when we talk about if you are a significantly successful black man, when it comes to getting a woman, you're going to have a much easier task as opposed to if you are a significantly successful black woman and you're trying to get a man. Because a lot of men are intimidated. Let's take away black women in general by significantly successful women. Because most women who are very successful in the corporate world, they've had to embrace masculine energy to get there. Because the American corporate workforce and the Western corporate workforce is still very male-dominated and very male-gendered. Which means if you're a woman and you want to climb the ladder, you need to embrace those masculine traits, I would like it to change, but that's the situation we're in right now. Therefore, if a woman is a VP or a CEO or anything like that, typically she has masculine traits, and most men don't really want to date that. Some base males... But, uh, but also, isn't it, isn't it, you talked about DNA, I didn't mean to cut you off, Dr. Trey, but DNA with the men who, is it just intimidation, or is it a man prejudging that successful black woman saying, oh, she ain't going to want to do it. She got every letter on, on after her name, the PhD and all that. She, she's not going to want to work with me. I'm a construction worker or whatever case, no disrespect to them. But is it not just intimidation, but is also prejudging that the fact that, you know, why would she want to even deal with me? Is that insecurity? Yeah, I, I would definitely say it, it's 50-50. I'd say it's one you know, men definitely have a bit of insecurity, you know, with masculine women. And two, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I've been a bus driver for the past 10 years. You know, I, I just don't think there's anything that I can do about this, you know, or they could say, well, you know, she's so educated and so intelligent. There's no way she would even give me a shot. So right. I, I think a solution for that is, you know, if we want to boost marriage rates uh, amongst black people, you know, we should really focus on uh, improving job opportunities and education, particularly mm. for black men. Um, you know, black women are winning right now, and, and I'm for it, but they're winning significantly more than black men. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article, and it's 
according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, they were saying that 18.4% of black men were jobless compared to 9.6% of white men. Now, we're not going to get into, you know, the historical atrocities or systematic racism, right? Because we know why we're here, fine. But at the same time, you know, there are still significant racial disparities that persist. I mean, end of March, you know, I was laid off by my job due to COVID. And it took me about two and a half months to get back into work, whereas I had a Caucasian counterpart where it took him a month. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics. It could have been, you know, maybe he had better context and connections that, that, that I did than I did. But my point we know what we know what it is, Doctor Trey. We we know what it is, Doctor <laughs> Table. Go ahead. We know. Come on. We know what it is. <laughs> but but yeah. But but what I'm saying is, you know, we need to give black men more opportunities to to thrive. You know, we need to allow the patterns that we've seen before to be changed. And you know, black women they they got to give us a shot. You know, they got to realize that we're still struggling. You know, we're still seen as a certain element in society and, and we need to be accepting of all people regardless of educational financial status.
Here we go. Uh, it's an honor and no pun intended, a pleasure to have on a judge from the North Carolina Court of Appeals. He's formerly, of course, of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. He's Christopher Brooks. And, Your Honor, it's a pleasure to have you on. I hope all is well with you and your family, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back on. It's good talking to you again. I hope the same is true for you and your family. We're hanging in there. I mean, uh, 2020 has been a hell of a year, it seems to me. It has. And and with that being said, Your Honor, uh, you know, we wanted to have you on and thank you uh for the short notice to to come on and and talk to talk about someone you well familiar with in your uh your years and and um being an attorney and 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 otherwise in the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg the former associate justice of the Supreme Court here um you know i one of the things i don't like it i think your Honor, we've talked about this before. Um, when you have situations where political people, um, for or against whatever side you're on, um, the, the sides do this thoughts and prayers. I I I don't even use that term because a lot of people use it and they really don't pray. But that's a whole different topic for another show. Uh, but thoughts and prayers, and you've heard. The president say some things, and you heard um, the Republicans say some things, and Democrats as well in terms of paying homage to her. But as as someone who has been in this realm for some time and studied her and know some of her rulings uh, and her dissents, talk about her her legacy. She, you know, one of the things that people are starting to talk about that she should have been talked about anyway is that she wasn't biased for women's rights. She was standing up for women's rights. And there's a difference. When you only have one woman at the table, right, there has to be some dissent on their behalf. And, you know, not even the the Roe versus Wade stuff, but just a woman's right to choose specifically, uh, you know, in terms of uh, equal pay, for work for women, these are things that are should be humane anyway. It 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 goes beyond um, those the those words that these Supreme Court justices put in, even in yourself, like put in place. It, it's a moral thing. So talk about her legacy for women's rights, and even standing up for men's rights. There were some cases where she actually had, was a dissent in favor. Of men's rights, a, a historical case, if you remember to talk about talk about her legacy, yeah. sir. Well, I mean, I think her legacy first and foremost is that she's a, a legal visionary who really changed uh, American constitutional law, and um, did so uh, in a way that helped us to sweep away a lot of the vestiges of sex discrimination. And I use sex discrimination as uh, the word and discrimination based on sex as the term instead of women's equality because of the exact point that you just made. One of the cases uh, that she was exceptionally clever as a litigator, you know, one of the cases uh, that was brought early on was a challenge to the fact that a man could not get a caregiver allowance from the government. 
The, the government right. was paying out caregiver allowances to women, but a man who I think in that instance was caring for um, his disabled spouse could not get that allowance. And that turned on sort of sex stereotypes about women being caregivers and men not being caregivers. And you know, she highlighted the fact that those sex stereotypes harm all of us. Uh, in that instance, they very much harmed that man because he was not able to be treated equally by the government based on his caregiver status. Um, but also, you know, highlighting the sort of like putting women on a pedestal and saying that women's place is in the home is not only harmful to women, but the rest of society misses out on exceptionally talented women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg when we put them in that sort of box. So to me, first and foremost, she's a, she's a legal visionary, but also I'll, you know, I'll add, um, and you know, her role in ensuring uh, equality of the sexes and, and women's equality has gotten a lot of conversation. You, you know, uh, LA, we have talked about LGBT rights before on the show, uh, though she did not write any of the LGBT opinions that were key LGBT opinions, you know, Obergefell, which said um, you uh, constitutionally had to have marriage equality, the freedom to marry for folks in same-sex relationships, but more uh, was written by Justice Kennedy. More recently, Bostock was written by Justice Gorsuch, which said that Title VII, which prohibited discrimination based on sex, prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status as well because you had to take into account sex to discriminate against somebody against on sexual orientation or trans status. Uh, none of those arguments would have been possible without Justice Ginsburg before she was a justice, her scholarship and her litigation because she really pointed the way towards a broader understanding of what constitutes sex discrimination and not only did she point the way to that, she was so successful in pointing the way to that that Justice Gorsuch, who is obviously a Trump appointee and has a very conservative re reputation, wrote the opinion in Bostock that said it was discrimination based on sex to discriminate against people based on the fact that they're a member of the LGBT commu community in the employment context. So um, her dissents merit a lot of conversation as well, but the real successes that she had before and after joining the Supreme Court, you know, merit a lot of discussion as well. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about her is that sometimes we get lost in um, the stature or the levels of struggle, if you will. So meaning that it, if, if a woman – struggled at a poverty level, but she made it, should not be different than Justice Ginsburg juggling a job and being a mom and going through law school trying to find, um, you know, being a law clerk and, and rising above. It, the, the struggles are di different times and situations, but there's still struggles. And I think that's one of the things that gets lost with her. Talk about that, that the fact that remember, uh, in, in this, and you know, as much as you could talk, in, in this male-driven, white male, really driven uh, country yep. that we have, um, that she she was a mom. Like, she was trying to 
do what she needed to do to get through law school and everything else. And yet she still persevered. And then her, her opinions and her, her vision, as you said, reflected that. So it wasn't so much a feminist standpoint, even though she had said she is a feminist, it was more so about, uh, the, the opportunity, um, to, to, to be able to, to get to that level and the struggle of it. Yeah, I mean, her story uh, at Harvard Law School is um, amazing. You know, her law school dean, she was one of nine women out of approximately 500 uh, people at Harvard Law School when she studied there. Her dean, the dean of the law school, you know, asked sort of rhetorically of the women, including Justice Ginsburg, you know, what are you doing here taking the spot of a man uh, at, wow. uh, at Harvard Law? Um, she uh, gave birth to her daughter um, uh, and raised her daughter uh, while being a law student. Um, her husband, Marty, um, uh, had uh, testicular cancer when uh, they were in law school together. So she was caring not only for her daughter, Jane, but she was also caring for Marty. During the course of um, uh, her studies uh, at Harvard Law, and not only caring for Marty and nursing him back to health, but also taking notes for him at class and typing up his notes so he, because he was in law school as well, could um, make it through. And she did all of those things, and she finished first in her class in law school. Wow. And, yet when she, and yet when she graduated, she struggled to find a job um, just on account of her sex. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that what you see and I think what you're pointing to is exactly right. I think that that gave her an understanding of the practical challenges that people face. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, she was, a, you know, a privileged person because she came from a relatively affluent background. Right. But she had real challenges right. on account of her sex, of account of her sex. But I think it made her understand the challenges um, that people of color had, um, that low wealth individuals had, that religious minorities had. Um, I think that her experience and that the LGBTQ community had, the struggles that she went through informed her understanding of those struggles. You know, one of my, just from a straight turn of phrase standpoint, you know, there we've talked a little bit about Shelby County before, um, which dealt with, um, uh, you know, uh, whether uh, uh, counties and jurisdictions that had previously been under what was the preclearance requirement where if they were going to change their voting rules, they had to get clearance from the Department of Justice or a federal court. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision authored by Chief Justice Roberts said that that was unconstitutional and that the South had changed and et cetera, et cetera. And Chief Justice, and, and Justice Ginsburg wrote the principal dissent. And you know what she said was, First, the Voting Rights Act is one of the crown jewels of American civil rights legislation, and it's been markedly successful. And she analogized the majority scrapping the preclearance requirement to throwing your umbrella out during the course of a rainstorm because you hadn't been getting wet during the rainstorm. Not recognizing mm. that, you know, the umbrella was the thing that was keeping you from getting wet. So, you know, um, uh, 
you know, I, I really think that they're, it just is a demonstration, I think, of uh, the fact uh, that she really understood the practical challenges uh, that, that litigants faced uh, frequently. There's so many instances of that that are plain in her writing and jurisprudence. If you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, a Judge Christopher Brook, of course, from the uh, North Carolina Appeals Courts here on the Bachelor News Radio Show and the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM, in Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. Um, Your Honor, when you – here's it, and again, if I ask questions, you ask to the best of your ability. Obviously, you're on the bench. Um but you get you 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 bring up a great point about her. The fact that she had this practicality about her, that she's had those experiences. She was the she she had that the you know parent raising a child, trying to be and again, like you said, top of her class, um, in in law school. But she had that struggle, even if she came from affluent, she she didn't get it based on the fact that she was a woman. Um, and then you have outside of Judge Clarence Thomas, which some of some of us African Americans say he hadn't been black anyway. But um, uh, you have you have a court now with Sotomayor and 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 and, and Justice Hagan. There, prior to them, and she was there, and you have those experiences from men that maybe didn't have that. The Judge Kavanaugh's that had. Uh, privileged situations. Does that make their descent more profound, in your opinion? If you've lived it, you know, if you if if you've been where she's been, and as a woman, you know, you carrying his baby. A man can't carry a baby. He can help uh, take care of it, but she's got to carry it and take care of it, and go to law school, and try to get the grades and everything else. Does that make it more profound with her descent as opposed to some of the other judges that uh, um, maybe didn't have those experiences? Well, here's what I'll say about that is, you know, and and as you sort of alluded to as a sitting judge, you know, I have to be thoughtful about how I respond to to questions, right? Sure. Um, here's, Here's what I'll say. You know, in my job, you know, the first thing we do is we look really hard and try to understand the facts and we try to master the law and figure out where they lead, right? And really try to logically reason our way through the challenge, the the legal challenge that's in front of us. Um, I, um, working as a judge, but also prior to working as a judge, um, really, really value the opinions of my colleagues just as a general matter. And when somebody disagrees with me, I really want to understand why that is. Um, And even if somebody agrees with me but has a slightly different take, I'm very interested in what that is as well. And that can manifest itself in 8 million different ways. You know, I was not a trial court judge before being appointed to the bench by Governor Cooper. I'm very interested in talking – you know, if if I write an opinion and a trial court judge says, well, this could be a little bit clearer. I – you know, when I was on the trial court bench, I wouldn't have exactly understood – what you're saying there, I really value that experience and take that advice to heart. Sometimes we might not agree, but a lot of times I say, gosh, you got it, right? And I want to take your experience to heart. Um, you know, there, as you allude to, are experiences that women have that men do not have. Um, 
and you know Justice Ginsburg's um, uh, litigate, you know, you know, women's experience, for example, being sexually harassed in the workplace, is not something that a lot of men are going to have a lot of experience with. So listening to those experiences is very valuable. You know, obviously, I'm a white guy. Um, listening to um, people of color talk about workplace experiences that they have or challenges that they have with law enforcement. I, I think that we all stand to benefit from leaning forward and listening very, very closely when someone who has had a different experience um, has a different background, a different perspective, um, uh, brings that to bear and uh, lays out you know, their thoughts on a particular matter. Does that mean we're always going to agree or I'm always going to be persuaded by that? No, it doesn't. That, that's a reality. But I think it does mean that I need to take the time to grapple with that and try to wrap my head around the point that's being made, uh, especially when um, there's a particular perspective being brought to bear that, that I might uh, not have uh, firsthand experience with. That's a, a great answer. It, and and Yana, I, uh, just to stay on that, two final questions. Uh, uh, the first one being, for me, I'm speaking for me, and this is in the airways. For me, I, it's going to be interesting to see, and there are different circumstances. When Justice Scalia passed, uh, there were a lot of people on both sides, right, that said, you know, yeah. talked about, that, you know, he, he was a conservative, but, you know, he stood on some things that Democrats or liberals would have said, you know, bravo on that. Um, but they talked about his intellectual mind, his, his, his mind, and all those who worked under him, um, uh, that uh, learned under him, um, and how, uh, you know, great and, and direct in terms of his, his uh, rulings and, and uh, was. And I I have I've I've heard some of that from one side, I haven't heard it from the other. Uh, obviously it's gonna be political with there's this is a presidential um year. Um the other side wants to nominate someone which would really shift the balance of, you know, um deemed as you know, um conservative and, and liberal six three from what people say. Right with Breyer and, and all that you know and all that, but the, but yep. the, do you think that she is getting uh, the same sort of equal at that on that theme uh, of respect and honor, and ultimately as the history books go on and we're all dead and gone, what would be her legacy, her her, her most uh, impactful and profound legacy? Um. I mean, I think the short answer to your question is she getting the the, res, the respect that she deserves. I mean, I think the answer is no. Um, I you know I think it is, and there are as you suggest many different reasons for this, and there's blame enough to go around. But you know, we're sitting here on the Monday after she passed away on a Friday talking about the sort of political implications and the implications on the court 
um, instead of talking just fully about her legacy, right? Because the conversation mm-hmm. has already right. moved on beyond that. And that already. Was the case in reg- <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. And I mean, uh, there was a similar dynamic at play when Justice Scalia passed, where, you know, the politics intruded very, very quickly, and there wasn't really time to, to, to just appreciate uh, what a towering jurist. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, both had been, you know, uh, agree or disagree with Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. Um, obviously, they're two of the most significant lawyers and justices of their time. Um, and their service to our country is, you know, is consequential and, and merits um, reflection and some time to consider, right? I do think that that ultimately Justice Ginsburg's legacy is actually summed up pretty well by Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia referred to to, uh, Justice Ginsburg as the Thurgood Marshall of women's rights, Um, Mm. just as as Thurgood Marshall really was uh, the intellectual force along with many other people but was one of the key intellectual players in litigation uh, that – um, helped to dismantle segregation um, uh, via cases like Brown v. Board of Education. Um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg was similarly a uh, similarly important intellectual force in litigation. Uh, you know, we made reference to uh, cases about you know sex, essentially sex stereotyping and caregiving. Uh, things, but also going onto the court. She's the reason that uh, women, they're female cadets at the Virginia, Virginia Military Institute now, um, because she wrote that opinion, holding that denying women the right to study uh, and attend VMI was impermissible sex discrimination. Um, you know, much like uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, really struck hammer blows against racial segregation. Um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg struck hammer blows again and again about uh, against sexual uh, sex discrimination and in particular uh, uh, about uh, uh, laws that uh, unfairly um, uh, impacted uh, women uh, in our nation. I I agree with you, and 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 I think that um, I guess. I slightly think that uh, Justice Scalia got uh, maybe because he was Chief Justice, but uh, he got a little more time to. They talked about the brilliance of him, uh, and you're right. I mean, it's just a week. It, it, you know, she just passed on uh, this past weekend, so maybe some more of that comes out. But uh, uh, quite, quite a uh, a woman with a lot of spunk and a lot of energy, and and those who are, were affected. Um, in a positive way in terms of uh, women and those other cases uh, are certainly um, are appreciating and respecting her at this, this point in time. Uh, Judge Brooke, listen, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for the short uh, notice. I really appreciate you and your insight. Uh, I know it's a tough situation. I know you love uh, 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 Judge Ginsburg's, but uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on this evening. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's always good to talk to you. I'm glad you're doing all right. Hang in there. You too. Appreciate you. And you and your uh, family, be ca- be careful. Will do. Will do. Take care.
Judge Christopher Brooke, he is the uh, uh, one of the judges at the North Carolina uh, Appeals Court, talking about the life and times and legacy of Ruth Ginsburg, the uh, uh, one of the great um, judges has passed on, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Going to switch gears in just a few minutes and talk some sports. On the Bastion News Radio Show, the Bastion News Radio Network, and WCOM, and uh, Chapel Hill. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us always. I want to go back to the phones, bring in my good friend. He is a 
the owner of Anastas Media and play-by-play voice under normal circumstances of uh, UMass, UMass Lowell Basketball. He is Nick Anastas. And Nick, hope all is well. Everything is still good for you, you and your family in the midst of this virus, sir. I am good, L.A. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Um, so it, we got a lot to, to, to touch on in the NFL, but I wanted to go NBA first. Um, you know, I I I hear the big shot by Antonio uh, – I mean Antonio uh, – Anthony Davis, um, and he called out Kobe and all this. I, I, I just think that it's a little overboard with the – with the Kobe stuff, um, it, you know, it's it's not the finals. It's the Western Conference finals. I get it. I know the respect. But I think that, you know, it's just a little overboard. And I'll say that. The second part of it is, you know, yeah, this is the Lakers. Yeah, this is LeBron. And this AD player is playing lights out. He should be, could be MVP. Um but this is a Denver team that's been down two oh three one before and they won. Now I know it was Utah. I even know it was the Clippers, but the Clippers had Kawhi and a bunch of other people. So are we talk about the, the big shot and how big it is and should we completely write Denver off because it's the Lakers? Hmm. Well, let's start with, with Anthony Davis. I think that was probably the biggest shot of the playoffs so far. I, I think we can agree there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you, I, I mean, look, he, I, I think I think he dropped Kobe's name right afterwards, right? That, that was the immediate post-game right. interview. So, you know, obviously the adrenaline's still going there. The emotions are sky high. Everybody's excited, so... You know, I, I don't I don't really hold anything against Davis. I know some people got upset. How dare you mention Kobe's name? And how dare you make a comparison? And, you know, I, I think those people need to relax, frankly. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it was, it was a big shot. It was a clutch shot. Frankly, it was a shot that I think Davis needed for the resume. Uh, right. You know, I as he continues to build on his own legacy, postseason moments, postseason milestones, big postseason shots uh, have not been on his resume up till the other night. So that, that's a big, obviously, uh, moment, I think, for Davis and uh, and good for him and good for the Lakers. Um, as far as Denver goes, geez, I, I, I don't know how they could – get out of this one and and I know you said you know they're down 3-1 they're the only team that's done it twice in the same postseason I think to ask them to do it a third time or potentially a third time if they get down 3-1 is just a little too too steep of a mountain I think to climb especially against the top seeded Lakers um, if this is the end of the road for Denver this year it was a heck of a run they got obviously a lot to be proud of and uh, in a bright future as well, it's still a young team that that uh, I think is, is is in a pretty good position to add some depth in the off season. I'm not sure what 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 their cap situation looks like, but uh, this group has been fun to watch. They've brought a little bit of prestige 
to the organization and uh, and it made the the city of Denver I think a little more attractive to potential free agents uh because of their postseason success. So uh either way I think the, the, the future is bright for Denver, win or lose in this playoff round. That is so funny. Uh, I mean it a little bit well, a lot probably before your time. I remember the days of Doug Moe where it was you know, uh, Mike Dunleavy and, and all these guys, and they just went down and shot. They just played. Uh, they they lost a lot to the Lakers. As you know, the Lakers have never lost to them in the playoffs, uh, but it, they were always fun to watch. That's that's how they kind of remind me of those those guys that, that just came out um, and 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 played well. And, and it was a lot of high-scoring games. They lost the series. They might have lost the six or seven, but – they they push the Lakers. I I can see maybe I'm hoping at least for them that that happens. We haven't talked much and had a chance to get you on with Miami. I listen. Miami and Dallas uh, were my sleeper teams in the NBA on both the East and the West respectively. Uh, I thought Miami just the way they shot the ball and they played. They're underrated defensively that they could get to the Eastern Conference Finals, not even maybe even to the finals if Milwaukee and the Bostons and the Toronto struggle. Here we have Boston there. Boston gets a nice win in game three, a much-needed win. Um, but it's just a series after three games. Um, everybody, again, going overboard with the block on Tatum and the game one and all that kind of stuff. And I get it. But, you know, Boston's back in it. Now, Kimba, my UConn guy, Newcom man has you know hasn't shot the ball well. He had a better shooting game most recently, um, but Miami's just they've, they've really made the plays when they needed to. And I was I'm very surprised at that. Boston's very deep, very athletic. They got interchangeable parts. Miami up until this last game has really handled that. So assess the the, the series after Game Three. Well, I think through the first two games, Eric Spolstra got the best of Brad Stevens. And we've talked on this show ad nauseum about how good of a coach Brad Stevens is. Uh, He is still a good coach. But I think that that Spolstra got the best of him in game one, uh, in, in game two especially when they came back from double digits in the second half, they, they, they made the switch to that zone and it took the Celtics a long time to figure, figure that out. Um, also, I think the rest factor helped Miami, at least initially. Uh, that's not an excuse, but if you take a look at when the Celtics fell down 0-2, that had been a pretty draining week for them, you know, going all the way back to a double overtime uh, game six, then they had a do or die game seven, then they had another overtime battle against Miami in game one, and then and then they, you know, they just looked drained in the second half, I thought, in game two because of that, uh, because of that long week, but, you right. know, they answered the bell down 0-2, they, they had their backs to the wall. Uh, and they responded in kind. I, I think a lot of Celtics fans were nervous going into game three. But, you know, Miami deserves a, a heck of a lot of credit. They're not that deep, but they, they really maximize that small starting five. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Butler. You mentioned Bam with, with some timely plays defensively. 
that, that certainly were, were major factors in games one and two. So, you know, we knew it was going to be a fun series. I think a lot of people expect this still to, to go the distance, to go seven. And I think it would be fun for the NBA and, and really a, a, a good storyline, a much-needed feel-good storyline for the league if this series is uh, is a memorable one and does go seven. I think it would be fun either way and good for the league overall. I think you know, the league, though, also wants Boston L.A. So they could drug up all the past and the bird and the magic and, you know, right. the big three with Rivers and, you know, the Lakers and then the, all that. Magic Johnson's been all over the place. He needs to sit down and shut up, by the way. I thought it was very insulting um, when he talked about the Clippers. And, I, I mean, I could see him talking about Paul George. But Kawhi Leonard, I think, has proven he can have an off game. But he's a two-time uh, NBA Finals MVP and, and won two rings. But anyway, I, I just kind of was annoyed by that. But they are, I think the league that is really kind of looking, hoping, uh, that is Celtics Lakers, so they can kind of renew that thing. Even Colby with Paul, you know Paul Pierce, and all that. Or even that current, that that most recent pass, not even going to Bird Magic. You could talk about that that Laker uh, Celtic stuff uh, with the, the the teams with the most um, NBA championships to, to bring that back. I think in this COVID, I think they really want that. I'm not going to say the officials might do something. I'm just saying <laughs> they, they, right. they want Boston right. and them, but we'll, we'll, we'll definitely see what happens. Switch gears and, you know, the, the beauty of having you on is that we can do this whole Tampa Patriots thing like all year, you know, with, with them. And I, I want to start with Tampa. Um, one of the things, and this is not even a Brady hate. This is a media and this is why I have you on, because you always give me the skinny. It's no no BS. It's, it's the real stuff. So I ask you these questions. And everybody wants to talk about, okay, how great Brady played. But it's two, two things I want to say. He talked about in New England that he didn't have the weapons. He has the weapons now. Now, I know Mike Evans still hurt. I know Godwin didn't play. Um. But he threw the ball. He he had a nice little back throw with back shoulder pass to Evans for the touchdown and the other pass and whatever. But he was off on the the handoff and still not right. Now again, to his to his uh, defense, two games in a new system, not going to be perfect. But to go from not going to be perfect to how great he played, I think is extreme. This offense. Uh, play the same Panther team that got dominated by Derek Carr and the Raiders last week. And they didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't do it. They had to turn over. You know, I get that. And, but, but this Panther team came back on them. So the Panther team, they had any kind of defense could have maybe who knows what would have won that game. So assess this, this Tampa team. And Oh, by the way, I don't see this great defense that the, the mainstream is talking about with Tampa. Right. I don't see it. Right. They got scorched right. in two games. They let Carolina come back in the game because of the defense. And like I said, the week before with the Saints, I mean, this is the Saints, but the Saints uh, did some things when they wanted to uh, in the game. So just talk about this game. That I don't, I don't see how great Brady was, and I certainly don't see how great this defense is. 
Well, a portion of the media is going to fawn over Tom Brady no matter what he does. They're right. going to spin. They're going to spin. They're going to stretch. They're going to exaggerate because they they want that that almost dreamlike narrative to come true. Um, that that's not obviously for everybody. I do think, especially after the Week One loss, there were a sizable portion of the media that, that did call it correctly that said, well, well, let's pump the brakes here. You know, there's, there's a lot to, to go over here. There's a lot to criticize, frankly, Brady about. Um, but, but, you know, most of the media likes Tom Brady. It, it, it's that right. simple. We know the, the league obviously um, views Brady as, as one of its, if not its major storyline. And, you know, Brady could be possibly one of the most recognizable, if not the most recognizable face in the league. So I, I think the league kind of wants him to do well, is, is kind of secretly rooting for him. And, and a lot of journalists who cover the league slash are employed by the league are, uh, are holding up that same mantra. And, and plus a lot of people are, you know, just are so used to Brady – uh, being successful and, and, and accomplishing things, uh, it's almost built in. That's almost a de facto reaction to anything he does. Um, but like I said, he did some things well in that Tampa game, some things well in week two in Carolina, but there's a lot to be worked on still. And let's not forget, he's 43 years old. That's not old. <laughs> You know, but you've been saying it. But you've been saying it. Dude, to your credit, you to your credit, he's been you've been calling for at some point. And I think the scariest thing for him and that offense is he's got. Listen, he's got running game. Um, he still had it. Him and Gronk is not there. But he's always been good at play action. His numbers at play action are bad. I mean, really bad. And that's that's a problem. If moving forward, if they don't fix that, if he can't get the play action stuff right, and he can't get the ball down, and I get uh, again a Gimpy uh, Evans, Mike Evans. But if he can't get the ball vertical, um, and he can't right. just think and dunk on play action, that's a problem. Yeah, and, and the writing has been on the wall for the last couple of years, and it shows still an MVP candidate. Uh, turnover, that's partially expected with a new team, I, I guess. Um, as they cut off. You're breaking up real bad too, uh, Nick. All right, let me let me try something here. Okay, there you go. Any better here? Any better? Yeah, okay. much better. Much better. Okay. Uh, part of it was that he had been in the same system under the same head coach for 20 years, so there was absolutely no question that Brady was an extension of the coaching staff on the field, which I think really gave the Patriots a heads up at the line of scrimmage before the snap was called. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's there yet. I don't think it's fair to expect that to be the case in Tampa after just two games. So I'll give him a little bit of, of, of the benefit of the doubt there, but you know, as far as staying alive and, and staying, um, 
an active starting NFL quarterback for this long, um, you know, he's had to make a lot of pre-snap decisions, but he's also had to make a lot of decisions after this two, three-step drops, getting the, the football out quickly, uh, the dink and duck, all that kind of stuff has enabled him to this point to survive and thrive, frankly, in the NFL. New team, new situation, new coaching staff, new year. He's 43. You take a look at the recent trend and and how his numbers have have kind of declined. And, And the eye test as well. You know, he hasn't gone deep in years he hasn't been able to stretch the floor, uh, stretch the uh, stretch the field rather, in years. It's been his ability pre-snap and his ability to get the football out quickly that has allowed him to extend his career to this point. How does he move forward? New teammates, new coach. I still think is yet to be determined. And back to your original point about the defense as well. I said this all summer. Where's the proof that this is a so-called budding young defense? Where's the proof that this defense was, was Super Bowl ready? It just wasn't there. They were mediocre at best numbers-wise last year and have been mediocre at best through the first two games of the season with a one-on-one record. So there's a lot of work I think he's done defensively, and a lot still needs to happen before Brady um, can really throw this new team on his back and, uh, and get a win. I think those days are over. Uh, I just want to let people know you have some difficulties on the Facebook Live. You could dial in uh, in the um, interim at 646-929-0130 to get in touch with us. If you can hear us, please just let us know. Wave uh, if you're watching and listening on Facebook Live. I appreciate that. Um, You know, one one of the things, too, uh, with this team is the fact that it – I don't see – I've heard Nick – that um, Bruce Aarons had said some really nice, kind words to uh, about Tom Brady, especially this past game, but they don't seem to be on the the greatest um, the, the the same page. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm I'm definitely not a Bruce Aarons guy. When he was in Pittsburgh, too much trickery and not enough football. Um, and now he's got Brady. So do you see that at all with, with them right now? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, I, I watched all of the week one game against the Saints, and it seemed like they, they were just trying to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall type of approach. Now, you know, I, I don't want to overlook anything. I don't want to read too much into a week one performance, but uh, it just didn't, didn't seem like they had too much of a philosophy. I know they're trying to get a little bit of balance. They finally realized that Leonard Fournette is their best running back. It took them a week to figure that out and uh, and obviously increased his role in week two. I think that trend continues moving forward as they, uh, as they go through the season. They're going to have to lean on a workhorse back like Fournette uh, more often, I think, than they would like to admit. So I think that that is um, possibly a development in the making, what kind of a role he has uh, moving forward. He went from five carries in week one to 12 in week two and ran for over 100 yards. So uh, if they can get some kind of a consistent running game, maybe that goes back to what you were saying, L.A., with the play action. Maybe that helps Brady by default. 
So I, I, I think you got to wait and see. I, I mean, it's still too early to cast judge on, on any, cast judgment on anybody. That includes Arians. That includes Brady. That includes Fournette. You just got there's, there's too many new pieces. I think right now, and we just got to wait and see what happens before uh, we can fairly pass any kind of judgment. Uh, talk with Nick Anastas of Anastas Media, of course, the UMass Lowell uh, basketball uh, play-by-play voice here on the Bassett News Radio Show, the Bassett News Radio Network, WCOM, um, in Carborough, North Carolina, and Chapel Hill. Uh, Nick, uh, looking at his former team in New England, this is going to be an interesting team. Uh, it, it's, you know, if if just from the the overall standpoint right right now and then go backwards if you will if if this quarterback stays healthy and if the, the way he plays the way they're doing they lost to a very good Seattle offensive team with probably the MVP it should be MVP a few years the MVP of the league and Russell Wilson but if if you look at this quarterback staying healthy and the way they move the ball, he threw for almost 400 yards, uh, and he's bringing out the best, not just in Edelman, who played lights out, but these young receivers, and their defense can get back. Because um, tonight, I mean, last night might have been just an apparition, but if they can do what they need to do, they got, you know, the defensive player of the year and all that great secondary um, there. This is going to be a team to watch. Like they don't miss a beat, and it makes Bill Belichick, like I said, like you said, the genius or the 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 piece of that dynasty more influential than the quarterback. It seems because you know Cam looked exciting, and he's he's listening to coaches. His passes are accurate. He's making all the throws. And, oh, by the way, he can still run the ball. And you look at a guy that's 6'5", 250, that can just knock guys over or swallow off tackles and things of that nature. They get their defense on, on, and which you expect them to do, be able to get that right. And Michelle can run the ball with Cam. I mean, they don't – they're back in the AFC Championship game. Like, they don't miss a beat. And – I don't care. People can get upset with me, Patriot lovers and Brady lovers and all that. I know people on this broadcast and the broadcast here that love Brady and whatever. Listen, Cam Newton, if he plays like this, if he plays like this, is the best fit for this Patriots team. Tom Brady can't run. He barely can do the play-action pass. We just talked about it. So him leaving and Cam coming in, a healthy Cam coming in, Nick, Looks like the best fit for the Patriots. The Belichick and them look like geniuses if this guy is healthy and and has an MVP type year all throughout the year. Will they win or lose? He if he plays like this, they have a shot. They're they, they're still in the conversation. I agree. And frankly, LA he's he's looked a lot better than I thought he would. Um you know, full disclosure, I, I thought he was done. I thought he was too banged up. I thought he was a little bit past his prime with, with a medical in, uh, medical history, injury history, rap sheet that's almost as tall as he is. I mean, he has literally been injured from head to toe, as we know. 
Um, that's why it's it's so important to, you know, continue to say and 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 a lot of people have said this. Well, if he's healthy, as long as he's healthy, it's almost like an asterisk that comes with it. Um, look, he he has looked very good. I, I think I think the rest of the league is looking at this like we made a mistake allowing this to happen. Frankly, remember all thirty one teams passed on Cam Newton. All 31 other teams except for the Patriots had a chance to bring him in for relatively cheap money. Uh, the Patriots thing ended, ended up with, with what, a, a one-year deal worth $10 million. So that, that right. that's pretty cheap money for a starting quarterback, especially a former MVP. Um, so I think the rest of the league is, is kicking themselves a little bit. Um, you know, whether they had a quarterback or not, whether they had a, a need for another quarterback or not, the fact that a contending team, a perennial contending team like the Patriots, was able to just scoop up this guy in his prime still, as we mentioned, at, at 31. I think he's still got some, some solid years there left. Um, but listen, as long as he's healthy and as long as he's uh, utilized correctly, and I think the Patriots have to take a look at, well, they, they called 15 run plays for him in week one. I'm not sure what the number was last night, but it was close to that number, I'm sure. Um, they, they got they got to obviously moving forward keep keep that in mind uh, if they want to keep him upright they want to limit the exposure I think ultimately long term but again as long as he's still a dual threat that makes Belichick the more dangerous that makes Josh McDaniels the offensive coordinator the more dangerous because it expands the playbook uh, you know run run call you saw in week one that would never happen. Tom Brady there. So the Patriots are more dynamic with a healthy Newton in the lineup. They are certainly more dangerous offensively. Now that leads us to the other side of the coin with that defense because they weren't the great unknown that they are now last year. Last year right. they were they were the you know, they were penciled in as a top two or three defensive unit all season long. I mean, they turned heads in week one. And they were called, quote-unquote, an elite defense for the rest of the year until they were knocked out in the playoffs. And Metcalf was was killing uh, Gilmore. Yeah, well, well, look, it's not the same defense. It's not the same defense. People forget. You know, they lost four starters to free agency and two more to COVID. I mean, these are are defensive starters. Uh, Hightower out because of COVID, uh, electing not to play. Um, same thing with Chung, who was basically another linebacker out there and a veteran who, who could adapt and, and, and you know, uh, really underrated piece, according to Belichick himself, of that defense through, uh, through three championships. And then, of course, they lost Van Oy to the Dolphins. They lost a couple guys up front to, uh, to Detroit and Matt Patricia. So all of a sudden, you know, yes, Stephon Gilmore is, is, is back, but, but really that's about it. I mean, they've got a bunch of guys up front that I think have, have played pretty well so far. Chase Winovich looks like he's ready to take that next step on the edge. And, um, and you know, the Patriots have a history of, of kind of bringing in no-name linebackers and Belichick kind of maximizing the return there. So I think that may be the case. But this defense is, is a big unknown. They got exposed a little bit last night um, with Metcalf, as you mentioned, and uh, and that I think is is, is more concerning moving forward than anything uh, related to Cam Newton on the offensive side. 
at least for now and at least as long as Cam is healthy. Great point. Talk with Nick Anastas here on the uh, Bastion News Radio show. You have a question, hit us up. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us, press 1 to get on the line. I want to go to uh, my good friend and uh, colleague, Tony T. Mac McClain. Good evening, sir. Hey, guys. Uh, hey, Nick. Uh, what hey, do, yeah, all right, man. Uh, what do the Celtics have to do tonight to uh, even up this series besides the obvious, of course? I hope it's not tonight. I think it's Wednesday, isn't it? Oh, it is Wednesday? Oh, that's, oh it is. Oh, okay. So much yeah. Well, well, what do they got to do to go for Wednesday? Yeah, you, then? you scared me. I thought I was going to miss something. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I think Wednesday is going to look a lot different because of the rest. I think finally the Celtics are able to catch their breath. We mentioned the schedule a little bit earlier in the show. How, um, you know, there really wasn't a chance for the Celtics to catch their breath after that long, grinding seven-game series against Toronto. So I, I think, if anything, the rest will help the Celtics as opposed to the Heat. But they got to come out with energy. And, you know, more guys have to follow, I think, Marcus Smart's lead. Remember, there was a, a big to-do about Smart and how he kind of sounded off in the locker room and was upset with some of his teammates. That seemed to have worked because they came out uh, in game three with, with some energy they were able to sustain that energy for four quarters, which was important, and actually finish the game. So I, I think no matter how the Celtics start, if they come out with fire, they're going to have to find a way to sustain it like they did in game three. I think Gordon Hayward coming back does help. We'll see how much how much that helps. Um, you know, if he can come in and come off the bench and, you know, play 25 minutes, give you 20 points, then that's huge, obviously. And it, that's something, frankly, the Celtics and their fans have been waiting for. Um, is that likely? Is that probable? I don't know. I, I don't, you know, game three, you kind of, you know, wanted to ease him back in. So um, does his role increase moving forward? And, you know, late in games, if it is tight, you know, I'd like to see the offense as a Celtics uh, fan. I, I'd like to see the offense be a little more fluid other than the, um, you know, isolation that they seem to go to, whether that's Kemba or Tatum. It just seems kind of stagnant late in games. They had a chance to win it, obviously, in regulation. Um, in game one, they chose not to run a play there. Uh, Tatum just kind of dribbled and then hoisted up a deep three that, you know, that didn't go, and they had to go to OT. I mean, Brad Stevens, make your paycheck. Run, run something through and through all the way down. Uh, if it is tight in the fourth quarter, I think that's going to be big. And then for Miami, you know, Drogic continues to play uh, really out of his mind. I mean, he's had a great postseason. He's making a name for himself. Can he continue to uh, to be that second scorer, frankly, and that second playmaker on offense behind Jimmy Butler? Obviously, uh, Bam, who's, you know, not really known for his offensive game, but but has been comfortable in that pick and roll, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting in ones, getting to the free throw line, et cetera. He, he needs to maintain his presence on offense. You know, how big of a part of the game he is defensively, but if he's really, you know, becomes something that it becomes a, a real two way player, that's going to be tough for Boston to counter because they don't frankly have anybody quite like him. Um, other than Marcus smart. I mean, Bam's a six, eight version. I think of Marcus smart. 
Smart's a six foot four, uh, six foot four version of Bam. I think that's a pretty fair comparison. So, I mean, both those guys are X factors. The two coaches uh, have already, I think, made their mark on the series and and, and are worthy of, of us keeping an eye on them as well. That they're, they're certainly part of this game, part of this series, and two of the better coaches, I think, frankly, in the league, certainly in the East. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of stars on the floor. Um, you know, pretty good basketball to watch. I think that the series has been fun, kind of a small ball series uh, with defense. I mean, both teams have gotten after it defensively as well, uh, which you don't necessarily see all the time. Um, so, you know, win or lose, it's going to be a fun series. But, but I think the X factors, Gordon seems like an obvious one. But they got to maintain that rhythm offensively the Celtics do in the fourth quarter of these games moving forward. Um, otherwise, run the risk of really coming off flat and, and possibly giving away another lead like they did in the first two games in the series. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Nick, before you go, just to go back quickly um, to the NFL and the, 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 the fact that, you know, uh, when you look at a couple of teams, I, I want to look at, you know, Kansas City, you know, pulled off a win. That was a grinded out. Is that was was that a grinded out win for them that they'll have to contend with the rest of the year being the, the Super Bowl champions? And and what about Anthony Lynn not going for it on fourth down, giving the ball back in overtime to uh, Superman, aka Patrick Mahomes? I think that's a learning experience for Anthony Lynn, I think. I, I think, you know, sometimes coaches outthink themselves and become too conservative. Uh, you can't really blame him, though, because that defense had been playing well. I, I watched all that game yesterday, and um, and my first takeaway was, boy, the Chargers look fast defensively. They certainly look pretty good. I mean, we couldn't judge much against week one. They played Joe Burrow got a win against uh, Cincinnati, but um, then to do it against, you know, the Bengals and a rookie quarterback is one thing. Doing it against Mahomes and the champs is another. I mean, they, they got pressure. They slowed down. They won the um, the time of possession war, especially in that first half. Um, you know, you, your bigger question, does Kansas City have a target on their back? Sure. You know, every Super Bowl champion does. Every defending champion does. I mean, teams are going to go out and, and they're going to give it max effort just because you are the champ. So, um, I, I think the days of expecting Kansas City to just come in and, and blow doors and blow everybody out, I, I think that might be a little bit far-fetched. This is actually the NFL. There's a lot of parity. There's a reason why it's hard to repeat as champions. We've only seen one back-to-back champ uh, in the last 15 years in the NFL. I think that's for a reason. So, they're going to have to get used to having their defense uh, come up big in, in tight spots down the stretch, which they did, by the way, yesterday. They, they erased an eight-point deficit in the second half and got the job done in, in overtime. So, uh, Plus, the division is better. You know, I, I do. I, I think the Chargers are better. I think the Broncos uh, are going to be a tough out, even though they're not the most fun team to watch. But as you know, the Steelers had to grind it out with them yesterday as well. Yeah, we and, and the Raiders are better. So, uh, you know, to, to, to just pencil in 13 and 3, 12 and 4, you know, expecting 40 points a game, uh, I, I think those expectations are a little too high 
And, um, you know, Chiefs obviously still a very good football team. You still got to have to strap it up to beat them. But um, to just pencil them in and, and think that they're going to roll over the entire league, that, that, that's just not realistic, I, I don't think, um, after yesterday's showing. Yeah, and I, I think the, the AFC and NFC West are, are, are pretty good darn divisions in, in, in both conferences. Um, and Carolina here in Carolina – you know, McCaffrey goes down. They're saying, quote, multiple weeks that he's going to miss. This is a, a, a good thing for them. I, I love Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, I think, though, you know, getting rid of Cam was a mistake. He's a healthy Cam. You see what he can do. And, again, it's only two two games, I know. But, you know, but you know they got D.J. Moore. They got, they got uh, you know, Robbie Barker from the Jets. And so they got some pieces uh, – uh, is are they only going to win maybe two games and maybe they can still be competitive even if McCaffrey's going to be out for a few weeks? Well, I don't know. I mean, just because McCaffrey, the offense revolved around him uh, since he got there. Uh, I think he had 92, 97% of the snaps last year, which is the highest in the league. So, obviously, he's dynamic in the passing game. So, when you have a player that that the offense revolves around that goes down, it really causes you to go back to the jarring board. Now, obviously, Matt Rule is a first-year coach anyway. He's, he's supposed to be this part of this next wave of, you know, the, the young masterminds, et cetera. Well, here's his chance to prove it. I mean, here's your chance to come up with some kind of a game plan that you can get credit for. Uh, without your best player, it, it, it's it's just going to be tough. I, I do kind of like Bridgewater. I think he's a tough kid. Obviously, a great story with that horrific injury he came back from. Uh, against all odds, a lot of people had had written him off. Um, but but it just seems like an uphill battle, even with McCaffrey, frankly. And now without him, that's that's really going to be going to be tough. That everybody's going to have to step up from the offensive line to all 11 guys defensively. It's, it's really going to have to the sidelines. It's going to have to be a team effort for Carolina because on paper, they're going to be underdogs without Christian McCaffrey, no matter what game they're in. Yeah. And they did defense. I think of what I've read, they were still looking for secondary help a couple of weeks ago. The season already started. So that yeah. it's going to be really tough. Uh, two minute right. warning with the uh, Nick and Nassis here on the Bass news radio network. If I get the, uh, Tony T. Mack, we're clean. Just a, a couple of more games real quick, or teams at least. Uh, my steal was with Roethlisberger. Um, didn't look that good. Late. And that's a credit to Denver as well. Um, the, 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 that offense, Pittsburgh-wise, still trying to figure everything out. They got he, they gave him some weapons, you know, but but Denver really grinded it out. They figured some things out uh, in terms of stopping Pittsburgh. How far can the Steelers go with a healthy – with a healthy, and I say because – I mean, nothing's promised a healthy Roethlisberger in the defense. The playoffs, for sure. They've looked like a playoff team to me through two weeks. Um, Roethlisberger obviously brings them a lot of confidence, too. I mean, forget his skill set. Forget what he can still do on the field. I think just the fact of having him healthy and in the lineup is a big boost morally for the Steelers, for the fan base, et cetera. So, uh, it's it's good and in, in, in the NFL as well. I mean, he's one of the more recognizable names. Um, it, it's good to see him back and in, in, in still producing. Boy, LA that defense looked pretty good. I know it was uh, the Giants and you know uh, who else did they play? I just mentioned it earlier. The uh, Denver, Denver, Denver. Right, right. Another young quarterback, backup, et cetera. 
they haven't really been tested on the other side in terms of opposing quarterbacks yet. So let, let's see. But 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 right now that defense looked like it picked up right where it left off last year. And Bud Dupree uh, is is I think really a, a budding star on the edge. I mean he yeah. he looked like he was involved in every single play in that Monday night game against the Giants. Um, flashed a little bit on the field in week two as well. So, uh, you know, they have they, Joe Hayden obviously still getting it done in the secondary. Um, they've got Bush, who I think, again, is, is, is ready to take the next step at linebacker. We know about Watt um, and, and how dynamic he is. And then you throw uh, Dupree in there, who's really looking like a pro bowler through two weeks. Um, you, you know, that means you got some, some formidable guys at all three levels of the defense. So it wasn't that long ago where we were saying, oh, well, you know, the defense this, the defense that. Now that defense is solidified, uh, maybe a top five defense overall. And if that's the case, you add in Big Ben, who's still got the arm and still got some, some uh, weapons around him, that makes the Steelers pretty dangerous in the AFC. Final two games real quick. Um, going in different directions, the, the Rams look like they're a little bit better. Eagles, I think Carson Wentz, I, 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 you know, People don't want to write him off, but I've been saying even this rookie year, too many, too many mistakes, too many chances. What about those teams? And is it time to let uh, how Dan Quinn keeps a job in Atlanta right. with that right. performance? Would that blow again? Is it something about that stadium in in, in Dallas or something? That I think people want to give the, the Cowboys all this credit. And Atlanta just did what they did against the Patriots. They just stopped playing, and Dallas came back. So I'm not getting ready to give the Cowboys all this credit for coming back. It's a big game. No, Atlanta peanut butter sandwich choked again and blew the game. Talk about both those games real quick. That's what I was saying all day yesterday after the game, all day this morning. I was like, how? checking my phone, just waiting for the news. Like, how how does Dan Quinn still have a job? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Mathematically, he had a 98% chance of winning the game yesterday in the fourth quarter. 98%. Hmm. That you know that that just doesn't happen. And then of course it was a 99% chance in that third quarter when they took a 28 to three lead against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Hmm. So you know Atlanta's going nowhere fast. They they need to just blow it up. Frankly. Uh, I know Matt Ryan still got a little bit of a uh, little bit of gas left in the tank. So does Julio Jones, but those guys are both on the wrong side of 30, 31 years old. Um, the, the defense, you know, has been banged up. Anybody from Keanu Neal who's had two major surgeries to uh, Deion Jones in the middle, just not quite the same player. So they, they, they've got a lot of problems. They do still have some talent on that roster, particularly at wide receiver, but. Um, you know, Todd Gurley's another one who's just done. I mean, they're 0-2. You, you might as well just pull the plug on this year. I would fire Dan Quinn and just start from scratch right now if I were Atlanta. Uh, as far as Philly goes, they're, they're not as talented as they've been. I mean, this is the weakest team I think we've seen out of Philly in the last four or five years. That defense, again, still has some names, still has some veterans, but they're not quite as explosive as they were during their Super Bowl run. And offensively, there's, there's there's a lot of guys who are down. Obviously, Sanders still isn't back to 100%. I know he played on Sunday, but but he's going to have to be a, a big part moving forward. Um, 
you know, their wide receivers are, you know, it looks like a bunch of guys who came off the street, frankly. Um, you know, you have Deshaun Jackson to stretch the field, but other than that, there's no real go-to guy. Uh, they do have that two, that dual tight end thing that, that has worked with Ertz and Goddard a little bit, but, but I think they just need more, frankly, on both sides of the ball. Ertz is going to step up his game or else it's going to be a long season, and we know how Philly fans get. You know, if they remain unhappy for very long, they're going to start turning on people. They haven't, they haven't turned yet on Peterson. Still kind of a honeymoon stage, I think, there. Um, and they haven't turned on Wentz yet. But, again, if they continue to lose, um, they're going to be on the hot seat, both of them. And the Rams, real quick, L.A., another dangerous team. They look like they've clicked. They look like they've been crisp. And with with all that pre-snap motion, you know, on offensive side, uh, McVay's starting to look pretty pretty darn good again on the sidelines. So I, I you know, their defense is good. Um, you know, they lost a few tough games last year, but but I think the Rams are back. I think Jared Goff is better than people think, and uh, the Rams are definitely going to be a tough out in the NFC. Well, we'll see. I'm still not sold on the Rams, especially in that division with a good Seattle team, an Arizona team. Nobody's we haven't you and I haven't even talked about. Um, and, and so we'll we'll see. I know the 49ers are banged up. We didn't get a chance to talk about that, but uh, we'll see about the Rams and 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 golf. They haven't really haven't really been challenged. Uh, uh, Nick, as always, man, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for your time and your insight. As always, sir, be careful. You didn't talk about the Buffalo Bills. Team exactly in, in the first place with Josh Allen doing what he's doing the historic That's numbers right. in the first couple of games so we'll talk That's about right. that too thank, thank you sir appreciate you thanks LA have a good one take care Nick Anastas of course from Anastas Media on the Bastard News Radio uh, a show T I want to go to baseball real quick obviously uh, a, a lot is shaping up in the uh, the American League I think four of the Seven, five of them uh, have been um, already decided in Tampa, the Yankees, White Sox, Minnesota, Oakland. Uh, there, not American so League much. Basic, American League is basically set. It's just a matter of seeds right now. Seeds, right, right, is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, National you know, in National League, you see what you still, see. Mm-hmm. National League is still, I mean, even mathematically, even the Mets are still in, but it would take a hell of a lot for them to get in. But I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll, you know, just to get a little bit ahead of myself, put a gun to my head right now. I know they're losing tonight. I think the Chicago White Sox have all the makings to win the to win a World Series. Where's I, this been? I, I've been calling. I'm, I guess I was too early. Two no, years ago, no. I had the White Sox. You know, I mean, with this, no, the talent, well, the young talent they well, had. Well, it's the young, but see, they got to remember they added Dyke, they, they added Keiko, they added uh, Yasmani Grandal, uh, and I think the kids have also has had a chance to uh, learn under fire, so to speak. And <coughs> excuse me, probably the best. Of all the teams, they may if they may them and probably San Diego have probably been the two teams that have taken advantage of this sixty game strip because I, I I think they needed the sixty games to really find themselves and define themselves. Now 
I'm not saying it's going to be Chicago and San Diego, but I really like Chicago to win a World Series. I really think that out of all the teams, they have the most balance. I mean, every team's got uh, warts, but give me a team. Because, see, here's the thing. We know, you know, the uh, the Yankees were prohibitive favorites going in and getting Garrett Cole. And right now they're a fifth seed. And, you know, right now they're in the midst of one of their uh, power stretches. But the thing with the White Sox, to me, that's different with them is as much power as they have, I think their lineup is a lot more consistent. And to be quite honest, I think their starting pitching is better. Their bullpen's a little, you know, back and forth. But uh, to me, they're the most balanced of all the teams. And, and I know there might be some other folks that may think otherwise, but I just – there's something about them and the fact that they're – that they have a young core, you know, I, I just I, – I, I like their chances a lot. Now, I'm probably I'm saying all this, they're probably getting – they'll probably lose two straight and be out in the first round. But, you know. Uh. <laughs> but you know what? It, it, to your point, I agree with you. I think they've been the most consistent. Remember, the last time we really, really talked about the Yankees, they were in the mire of a losing streak. Then they went on as a – so the consistency is there. I think the starting pitcher is better. But, you know, the, the irony of this game, and I, I really do, I really do hope that baseball has a great playoff, is that because of COVID-19 and because it was so botched, you got both the Chicago teams in a position to do some stuff. I mean, when's the last time we've had that? You know, um, uh, not, not not in my lifetime. <laughs> right. So to, here you got here you got the Cubs in in, in first place, and, and and going to make the playoffs. The White Sox are, are to me, like you said, the best team in the American League of not in baseball, arguably. And and here you have it, and that's that's not a conversation that you're always having, not because so much the virus, but because of the way. Well, because of virus, but also the way that baseball kind of handled it, the, the narrative is not there. The way it, it's a great story. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Now that I actually sit down and think about it, maybe 1977, when uh, the White Sox, you know, basically had the rented team with uh, Richie Zisk and Oscar Gamble, and they were actually leading the AL West for most of the year before they collapsed. And, and I think if I remember correctly, the Cubs actually had a decency. That might be the last time that I can remember where the, both of them were still in it, you know, this, uh, at this, at, at this late of a time. But um, if nothing, you know, if baseball can survive this week without any major COVID uh, things on the surface, because of the, because of the basically uh, Lollapalooza uh, way that this uh, postseason is going to play out, it's going to make for interesting stuff. Now, it's going to be hard as hell to follow the games because basically I think uh, day one there's like four games and then I think there's like six the next day. They're they're going to do them. They're going to do the sprint like the NBA did and the NHL did when they first started. You're going to be seeing afternoon games. Midnight games, twilight games, and uh, what have you. But they are going to be, and they're also going to be playing in the. Um, they, they're, going, they're going to bubble up the, uh, the postseason. I guess um, half of it's going to be in San Diego, the other half's going to be in Texas. Although they had to move a, a series out of San Diego last week because of all the uh, fires and stuff. So 
you know, it's still everything's still up in the and, air. It, they got so many storylines, and hopefully, they take advantage of it uh, quickly because uh, I know we got to go. But um, two teams, and you mentioned San Diego. Listen, this team, I know it's only sixty games or whatever the case. But San Diego's right there with the Dodgers. I mean, they they're only a few games out, four games out, or whatever. Talk about that their their team the first time what since um, Tony Gwynn the, the, in the World Series they made the playoffs if, if I'm not mistaken, and yeah. then um, nobody's really outside of you. Nobody's really talking about the Minnesota Twins, who are a very good a baseball team. Well, see the, the the see the thing is with the Twins, and I don't know if it's trending now. I hope for their sake they don't have to play the Yankees the first round. Right. Uh, not so, not so much, not so much that they can't beat them, but it's it's they're in their head for whatever reason, and and every year they just they always seem like no matter what they do they always want to have to play the Yankees the first round, and I think if they wind up playing them again, I think all three games will be in New York. But um, the Padres, I like the the Padres to a certain extent are uh, mirror images of the White Sox, and Ironically, the one common thread is the fact that Manny chose the Padres and didn't chose the White Sox. Remember, they, they thought the White Sox thought that they had him right. locked up, and he wound up going to San Diego. So if they should meet in the World Series, that's going to be a hell of a story in and of itself. If they both get that right. far, it's probably a little bit too, probably a little too far ahead for that. But. I get the feeling with the Padres that they may be a year away from really doing something. I mean, they're going to be in it. I mean, and you got to like Tatis Jr. You got to like their you got to like their lineup as well. They have they have the balance as well. Uh, the pitching getting Clevenger was a godsend for them uh, because Big it gives for them. the guy. It gives them a guy that has some postseason, uh, some postseason um, resume, but he also gives them a guy at the top. Now, afterwards, the pitching is kind of, you know, a little bit of whatever. But it's it's let's put it this way: the one thing with them is they are not scared of the Dodgers. Where there you go? That's where yeah. I was going to go. Yeah, the Dodgers. And and remember, now, you know, the Dodgers are peanut butter sandwich, so. Well, the Dodgers, Even in the sixty games, the Dodgers, the Dodgers are the are where the Colts were before they with Manning before they won the Super Bowl. The regular season damn near means nothing. You got to do it in the right. postseason. Is it fair? Probably not. But unfortunately, they, they this is this is they they've chosen their own fate because they've you know because of, and when you realize that they basically went for it. By uh, signing uh, Mookie Betts, all the more, all, you know, all the more reason. Now, I don't. The, the sad thing is, and I think we've said this a bunch of times. If they don't win the World Series this year, I think Mr. Rod, I think Dave Roberts is going to be out of a job. Yeah, and and, 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 really, and the sad thing is, you can't. As much as I hate to say this, I can't say I blame him. You know, I mean. You you know those 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 Western Division championships are nice, but with the money that they've invested, with whatever, they need to you know they need to have a parade in um, at the end of the year. Yeah, and if, if, you if know everything, I, if everything if everything works out right for the city of L.A., there's two there's two parades going on this year. 
Yeah, and and to in fairness to what you're saying, I mean, I, I, I look when Madeline Lee was there, I was critical. Like they they got to win. Like you you got to win. Like you have they they got the money. You have to win. And that's why I said peanut butter sandwich. And and the Padres are not afraid of them. It's house money. They got nothing to lose. Yeah, Yeah, Like you said, they might be a year or two away, but why not? (laughs) Well, see, this, but see, that's the kind of season. I mean, look, if someone had told you, uh, you know, at the start of the, at, at the restart of the NBA playoffs, that there's a possibility of a Denver Miami final, you'd have looked at them. You would, you, you know, you would have had them committed on the spot. And even right. in the NHL, if someone had told you Tampa and Dallas, no way, absolutely no way. So why not? We'll see how. Yeah. I look, the network, the networks want the Dodgers and the Yankees, but of course, the networks, the networks ain't gonna get, ain't gonna get what they know. They sh- at this point in time right now they should be just happy that games are being played first of all right and and and, and to your point the networks at uh, uh, before you came on Nick I was telling Nick the Nick that the uh, NBA wants Celtics uh Lakers you know so they can nostalgia and all that other yeah. stuff and, yes, but the, and, you know and, the White Sox and, Padres and hell, would be a fun people, series and, that'd and be a fun in, series and people in hell want ice water and they're not going to get that <laughs> either so it's you know we'll, we'll see I mean put this way they should. They'll probably get one of them. They'll probably get one of them. They may not get both, especially if, uh, especially if Jimmy Butler has anything to say about it. And, and yeah. there for the there for there for the grace of uh, Anthony Davis, you would have had a one-one series last night. Yeah, I, I was hoping for it. I, I am not a Laker fan, but it, it, anyway, I digress. Uh, we're gonna run. Uh, T as always, man. I'll talk with you on Thursday. Thank you, sir. All right, man. Talk to you. All right. Hmm. If you see any part of our broadcast, go to our website, the Bastard News Radio, uh, the Bastard News Airtime Pro, the Pro. We are playing love songs now. You can go there now and listen to those songs at the Bastard News Airtime Pro. It's called Whisper Softly, Love Songs. Listen right now. Enjoy the rest of your time, uh, and we will talk to you very soon. Don't forget tomorrow uh, we have two more shows on the Bastard News. Radio show on the Bastion News Radio Network and WCOM in Carborough and Chapel Hill, North Carolina.
Oh 